Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. And last week was just kind of this big overarching overview of the book of Esther. And tonight we're going to get into it a little bit more. And there's something uh, something about the book of Esther and books like it, uh, different than really many other books that we have uh, done series on. A lot of other books we've done series on have been from the New Testament, either the Gospels or an epistle and so on and so forth. Whenever you do a book like Esther that's a story or a narrative, and we've done a few but sometimes it's like there's sections of scriptures that you're just kind of getting into all the inner workings and gears of the story, right? It's not like there's two verses and there's a point and there's three verses and there's a point. You have to kind of take the whole story really of Esther together for the overall point of what it is. And so tonight my, my objective is not to bore you by no means, but we got to kind of get into a little bit of the inner workings here of Esther, some of the background uh, leading into why uh, King Ahasuerus is having these feasts. And so we're going to look at the first 12 verses tonight. I'll read them if you'll stand with me as I read. And uh, I'll try to do it as quickly as possible so you can be seated. Starting Esther 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even into Ethiopia over 107 and 20 provinces. That in those days when, and the Bible says some things in our King James, a little weird sometimes, 107 and 20 provinces is 127 provinces, okay? That ain't the way that we would say, but that's the way it's said, and that's the, what it equates, that's what it means. That in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast, and all his princes and his servants the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of provinces being before him, when he shewed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and four score days. Here we are again, right? Four score days. A score equals 20 years. So four of that, that's 80. So you have 180 days. All right, And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan, the palace, both unto great and small. Seven days, we can do that, right? <laughs> we know what that means. Seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink and vessels of gold, and vessels being diverse or different, one from another, and the royal wine in abundance and according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel, for so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizda, Arbona, Dikta, 
and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass. There's just some names for you children if you haven't picked one yet. The seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus, the king, to bring Vashti, the queen, before the king with the royal crown to shew the people and the princess her beauty, for she was spared to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Simply tonight, I've just labeled this lesson, King and Queen Banquets, because there were two banquets or a few banquets going on, some held by the king, some by the queen. And we'll ask the Lord to help us the next little while. Father, we need you tonight. God, we pray, O oh Lord, for your spirit. God, enlighten our hearts and our minds. Help us to learn. God, of your word, Lord Jesus, as we begin to walk through the book of Esther together, that there are some truths there that we'll be able, Lord, to learn and perhaps apply to our own lives as we go along, Lord Jesus, the way. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Everybody say amen. amen. You may be seated. I don't know if there's any history busting here today, but we got a little history to wade through here today. The author of the book of Esther, as I told you last week, we really don't know who the author is. Some believe maybe it was Mordecai, others Nehemiah or Ezra. But nonetheless, the author reflects upon the events uh, as these events were something that took place already in the past. We're introduced to the king. We're introduced to his empire. The king is Ahasuerus. Uh, he, he relates historical to a historical king in the Persian Empire who was more so known by the name of Xerxes, uh, usually not called Ahasuerus, but Ahasuerus is his name in the Hebrew form. Xerxes is his name in the Greek form, and we have that happen through the Bible oftentimes. Uh, someone that was named something in the Old Testament, and the spelling of it is a little different in the New Testament. It's all according whether it's Hebrew or Greek or what. But nonetheless, Ahasuerus, his name comes from an old Persian name, and his old Persian name meant this. He rules over men, and he rules over heroes. And the meaning of his name has proved to be true even in our story of Esther. Because we read in the open verses that he ruled over an empire of 127 provinces. He had at his time the largest empire in the world. And uh, if you, and I know I'm dipping back, but if you've ever read the book of Daniel, and we've done series on the book of Daniel, but if you ever remember back about the book of Daniel, uh, whenever King Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of this, this image, and Brother Alex, if you can help me out with that first graphic tonight, Daniel had a, a, a vision, or not Daniel, but Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of this image and uh, it, it had a head of gold and, and arms and chest of brass and a belly and thighs of, of brass. Rather, the, the chest and arms were of silver and the legs were of iron. The feet were part iron and part clay. That's in Daniel 2. You'll recall, and even as, as denoted here, that each of those metals in each of those sections denoted a different empire or a different power that would rule over the world. And Babylon was the head of gold. And then Medo-Persia would conquer Babylon and kind of absorb it into itself and then so on and so forth unto Greece and so on. And so when we look at this and we understand this, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, which uh, Ahasuerus is a Persian king, he defeated, they defeated 
the Babylonian Empire. And at that time, Israel, the nation of Israel, was held captive by Babylon. And so in now this empire that Ahasuerus is over are Babylonians, children of Israel, because it's just one empire larger and larger and larger. And so now King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, has one of the largest empires because it's just swallowed every other empire before. I think we have a map, too, that just shows how vast the kingdom of Persia was at that time. Everything in green is the kingdom of Persia at that time. You see it covers a lot of area, right? It goes over into... Uh, what is today modern-day Iran and Iraq, and there's uh, Jerusalem and Israel down into Egypt. Just It covers a wide, wide band of area. And so this guy, has he's very meaningful because he has the largest empire of his day. As a matter of fact, if we go back to Daniel chapter number 5, and we see this transition of going from Babylon to the Persians or Babylon to the Medes and the Persians. In Daniel 5, there's a king by the name of Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the last Babylonian king. And he, and as kings do, even in Esther, he's holding a great feast. Uh, there's people there. Uh, they are drinking. They're making merry. And all of this is taking place. And as they are doing this, though, there's a hand that appears over by the wall and begins to write upon the wall. I'm sure some people in the party had to stop and say, is that something I just had or is that really happening? All right. And so there's a handwriting that takes place on the wall. And this is what the Bible says in Daniel 5 and verse 25. And this is the writing that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, you farsen. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mene, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. He's speaking to Belshazzar, the last, the last Babylonian king. Tackle, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided in note and given to the Medes and the Persians. You skip down to verse number 30 of the same chapter. It says, In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. Verse 31, And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. Now, again, don't want to get people confused. As in Scripture and as in our everyday lives, there's more than one people here upon the world called Mary, more than one person that has the name Fred, right? And so there is a Darius, which was the, a Median, and there was a Darius, which was a Persian. And so you got to keep them straight. Darius the Median was, uh, was uncle to Cyrus the Persian. If you remember from last week, we talked about Cyrus, because Cyrus is the one that gave the... The, the decree that all the Jews could leave captivity and go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, rebuild their homelands, rebuild the walls. Well, Cyrus the Persian uh, was one that helped his nephew, Darius the Mede, to conquer Babylon. All right? And so Cyrus was very heavily involved in military campaigns. So he came along. He helped defeat Babylon. And as a result of it, the Bible says, then Darius the Mede is the one that took the kingdom because his, his, his uh, uh, nephew helped him out, so to speak. But he's the one in power. Now, here's what's interesting concerning the Medes and the Persians. Um, in Daniel 5.28, it tells us that the Babylonians will be given to the Medes and Persians. The Medes come first, 
than the Persians. In our book of Esther, Esther chapter number one and verse number three, we learn in verse number three that the power of Persia and Media was present at this banquet that the king was throwing. So there's a reversal of names. And Daniel was the Medes and the Persians. And Esther, it's Persia and Media. And the reason being is because at this particular time, the Persians are the stronger power of the two. They have an alliance. They are together, but they're the stronger power of the two. And it was different, though, in the book of Daniel. As a matter of fact, if anybody remembers anything ever taught on the book of Daniel, you can go to Daniel 7 as well, and it starts to list several different beasts in the book of Daniel that indicate certain empires and certain thrones. One of those beasts or one of those animals was a bear. And the Bible says that it was raised up on one side, which is denoting the Persian power that was greater than the Median power that would happen in its day. And so that's just a little bit of the background of everything that is taking place here. And the reason why this history is essential to us for Esther is because it lets us know why Ahasuerus may be having a banquet right here in chapter number one. Because if we follow where Ahasuerus is in the line of, of Persian kings, we have Cyrus, the Persian, we have Darius, the Persian, then we have Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus' father, I know this is history class, I'm sorry. Ahasuerus' father, Darius, sought to make war against the next kingdom in the pecking order. Because there would be Babylon, all right? Persia would overtake Babylon, and then later Greece would overtake Persia. Ahasuerus' father, Darius, really wanted to make war against the Greeks. Several times he tried, but several times he was defeated. But Ahasuerus had made a vow to himself that he wanted to honor his father by conquering the Greeks. He wanted to honor him by conquering them. And so he was in the process of strategizing how he could go about this. And so whenever you're about ready to go to war, guess what? You want to have everybody that you are king over on board and so the best way to get everybody on board and rally around the king yeah we're going to go to war is to serve them food huh right there's nothing like serving somebody some food if you want somebody to do some work at your house just say you're going to have food right and so nonetheless he serves them food they have this party he's getting everybody together he's showing them his kingdom He's shown them some of the niceties of his kingdom, all these different colors and different stones and pillars and gold and silver. And what he's trying to convey to those that are around him, and notice who he invites. There's the nobles and there's the servants and there's the princes. But the Bible says that the power of Persia and Media are there. And that word power just basically means that the army was invited. The military leaders were invited. And they were all there as well. And so he wants them to understand, look at me. I got a very plush kingdom. Look at this gold. Look at this silver. I'm a man of means. I'm a man of wealth. I'll be able to pay you for your military efforts if you go to war alongside me and with me. 
And so this is why we have such a grand banquet right here from the go in the book of Esther. The king is strategizing to go against the Grecians. And all of this is taking place. And for that matter, banquets accomplish a couple different things. Number one, it shows whoever empire, whoever empires it is, it shows that how great it is, but it also helps keep the people and maintain them faithful to the king, right? I mean, if you have 127 provinces all over God's creation, and no doubt you have people over them, every once in a while you need to see all those people in those 127 provinces. So his way of keeping the people faithful. And so the Bible says in the third year of his reign, he made this feast for these dignitaries, for the military, for the army, for the nobles, for the princes. And so here's all these people. And he has this feast, the Bible says, for 180 days. That's about six months. I don't know when the last time you went to a festivity that lasted for six months. But it's highly possible that everybody from those 127 provinces didn't show up, pitch a tent and mailbox for our six months. It's highly possible that he had different groupings from the different areas come through through a period of time of six months. But he's showing them all the grandeur, all the medals, all the riches that he has during that period of time. And whenever that had all ended and he had showcased everything he had, the Bible says he has another feast. I mean, if six months wasn't long enough for the king, let's add seven more days. I mean, what's seven days when you've been going for 180? And said for seven days he has another feast, but this feast is for those that are immediately present in Shushan. The Bible says both the great and the small. In other words, you didn't have to be a certain social class to be a part of this. It didn't matter whoever. If they lived at Shushan, they could be a part of this celebration and this feast. And so all these people were invited into the garden or the court of the garden that belonged to the palace where everything was hosted and look at verse number six of our text it holds the description of the court of that garden and it's like one of those wow moments uh, uh, whenever it begins to describe it it says where where were white green and blue hangings so we have some type of hangings or curtains or shears or something of white green and blue fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings, pillars of marble. I mean, this is quite lavish. The beds were of gold and silver. I really don't know how well that would be to sit on. A lot of times they reclined on beds to eat or to sleep in. I've never slept in a gold bed or a silver one for that matter. All right. I do have memory phone on top because I bought it to put it there. But nonetheless, and upon the pavement of red, blue, white, black, marble. So you have all these colors, all these materials, hangings, pillars, beds, marble, marble. The pavement is almost like a mosaic pavement of different colors. And the awesome thing about this, or the peculiar thing I might say about this, is that we don't usually see this sort of detailed description for pagan places. And that's what the, the kingdom of Persia is. They serve pagan gods. A pagan place wasn't usually described like this. As a matter of fact, Usually you only have descriptions like this one where it talks about all the colors, all of the materials, all that. You only usually see descriptions like that whenever the tabernacle or the temple is being described in the Bible. You usually don't see this type of description except usually just whenever the tabernacle or the temple is being described. And so we ask ourselves the question, why in the world would, would one waste? Why would there be such recorded specifics 
be wasted upon the pagan place, the pagan court, the pagan palace. And I can only say this, remember, Esther and Mordecai are in Persia because they chose to stay in Persia. Remember? The decree was that they could go home. They didn't go home. They're there because they chose to stay there. All I can say is this. When you are a Jew who's refused to return back home to Jerusalem, you need an idea of what you settled for. Whenever, whenever you're no longer embracing the temple and the things that are over, you need an idea. So here's the colors, here's the materials, here's, here it all is. And here's the fact of the matter. When you no longer have his place, which was the temple and the tabernacle in Jerusalem, when you no longer have his place, you resort then to underscoring how great the place you settled for is. Let me state it like this. When people sometimes leave God and leave the church, they got to talk about how magnificent their life is without God to try to tip the scales back in comparison to how it was when they had God. Because mm -hmm. the more I can talk this up, maybe I can get people to believe that I'm not lacking something over here that I had when I was with the Lord. And so we have this great, very specific, detailed description of the court. And so the drinking vessels in, in this festivity, each one was a different drinking vessel. And that, that says a lot. It's not like they all had solo cups, okay? Every one was a different drinking vessel. As a matter of fact, I, I listened to a little bit of a lecture this week from somebody in a university that was just talking about Persian drinking vessels. And they were varied. Drinking vessels, every one of them was different. None of them were identical. And the Bible says that the wine was according to the state or according to the quality of the king. The Amplified Version says it like this. There was royal wine in abundance according to the, the liberality of the king. And it says that the drinking was according to the law, but the law had nothing in place here, it seems, because here's the way that things usually happen. People that were at these festivities, usually they would take a drink to a toast that was made, or whenever the king drank, they would drink. If he picked up their chalice, they picked up their chalice. And so it was dictated by the king. But here it says that... It, there was no law. It was a, it was a free for all. That the king wasn't urging anybody to drink or anybody not to drink. It was according to their pleasure. The Bible, Bible and the Amplified Version says it like this: that there no one was compelled to drink. In other words, no one was forced to drink. All right. The king and the servants wasn't going around forcing people. But it says that they were to serve each guest as each guest desired. That there was no. For that matter, they didn't have to, but there was no limit to it either. Each did what they wanted. And in the real world today, when no law regulates an action, it's usually done to the extent of the pleasure of the individual. If we had no speed limits, some would go 100, turn it into the Audubon, right? There would probably be very few if there were no speed limits that would say, you know what, I'm going to go 30. Between here and California, 30 all the way, baby. No. You usually, usually when there isn't a law regulating an action, then it's done to the extent of the pleasure. Whatever they want. Whatever 
you desire. And so when we understand that, again, we're talking about Persia here, right? We're talking about Persia, Persia people, and there's some Jews in the mix because they chose to stay there. Now, when it comes to the Bible, the Bible warns us against drunkenness, all right? It warns us against drunkenness. And according to the Bible, the best way to avoid drunkenness is not to drink at all. I think it was Brother Fred not long ago, and we had a, one of our small groups or whatever, and he was talking to the fact that he, he knew very little people that could just have a drink without getting to a place that another drink demanded another drink, demanded another drink, before you know it, you're toast. Old Japanese proverb said it like this. He said, first the man takes a drink, and then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man. Huh? We got a witness here, he says. Amen. Amen. And so, therefore, with all of that being said, I believe it's fair to assume that we may have, over a seven-day period of time, some drunken people on our hands here at the party. All right? Some showed perhaps no restraint, but it was according to their pleasure, what they wanted or what they desired. Especially there was no law regulating it. No one's going to slap their hand and say, nope, you had enough. And these are a Persian people that lacked some moral scruples. They, 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 they lacked a moral bearing. And so all of this is taking place. Now, that, that sets the stage of we have people that for seven days have been taking wine at their liberty. And as much as they want, it is there for them to take. And so the Bible tells us at the end of this seven days is whenever the king of Hazarus calls for Queen Vashti. According to someone who's called the father of history, father of history for the Greco-Persian wartime, he said that Persians usually had their wives with them at their feast. And that appears to be the case, particularly in the kingdom of Babylon before it became the kingdom of Persia. Whenever you read in Daniel 5 that I read to you earlier about Belshazzar, a Babylonian king, and their kingdoms absorbed into Persia, we read in Daniel 5 verses 1 through 4 that Belshazzar the king made a great feast. The thousands of his lords, and here we go, drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, look, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes and wives and his concubines drank in them. Verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. And so, again, the, this father of history said Persians usually had their wives with them at their feasts. The king of Babylon uh, that leads into the kingdom of Persia, they, his wives were present. But... The queen also, we can see the queen was sitting by King Artaxerxes in Nehemiah 2 and 6. That's just for your reference. When Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, the Bible says that he come and he bore his cup to the king and it says that his wife was sitting there with him. There's other sources though that say that Persian wives, note though, particularly queens, seem to leave banquets when the drinking began. All right? Belshazzar's queen, for that matter, 
her queen, now he had wives and concubines, he had a, a harem of ladies, but his queen did not come to the banquet. There was drinking going on. She did not come until she heard about that handwriting on the wall. You can read of that in Daniel 5.10. I'll read it. Now the queen, Belshazzar's queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords came into the banquet house. By, by reason of the words, what? She heard about there being a handwriting on the wall. That's the reason why she showed up. She typically wasn't there when everybody was taking it in. Normally wasn't there. And so Jameson of Jameson Fawcett Brown says, according to Persian customs, the queen, even more than wives of other men, were secluded from the public gaze now this is important this is true still yet today right because much of Persia even covered modern day uh, Iran and Iraq as a matter of fact the kingdom of Persia was greatly Iranian uh, driven concerning the people still yet today in the Mideast uh, that culture of people keep their women very secluded even in their attire you look up the, the, the attire of mid-eastern mid ladies and you may see nothing but their face or nothing but their eyes. And so in the Persian custom, it was to keep their queen secluded from the gaze of the public. And that may give us a little indication why Vashti, whenever she was sent for by the chamberlains, to come to this feast because Vashti had her own feast going on, right? With some women, the Bible even says that whenever they went to get her and had her going to have her come to the royal house while she had her own feast going on, that might explain why she refused to appear before the king in his presence. Number one, because she was typically normally secluded out of the gaze of many people. But number two, she's being asked to come before a bunch of guys that's had free course of the wine for seven days. And verse 11 tells us the purpose, evidently, for her purpose or for her, her invitation. The king wanted to show the people and princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. Uh, the, the Jerusalem Bible says it like this. She was indeed a good-looking woman. Amen. And having him state that or want her for that purpose again kind of underscores the fact that the queen must not have been a regular spectacle of the people for him to have her come at a special time so people can just look at her right I mean if he's going to do that with some of you like said you know so and so come over so everybody can take a look at him say, I've seen him every day this week you know what I mean this is nothing special about this but uh here he's having her come at this particular time. And let me ask you this. This is not rocket science. This is just thinking with common sense. What type of environment or what type of result you think would happen with a beautiful lady walking in, a bunch of drunk, bunch of drunk men? I'm just asking. I mean, I don't know. I've never been there myself. But I can theorize in my mind a beautiful woman coming in among a bunch of drunk men that's been going for seven days. Say what, Mike? <laughs> right. So it's not going to be anything good. It's not going to be anything good. And so verse even 10 tells us that the heart of the king was merry 
with wine. Now, the Hebrew word for merry can mean anything from good, cheerful, or drunk, based upon the context. Based upon this context, I believe being merry with wine is not just good with wine, not just cheerful with wine. This guy's blown out of his mind. Right? His crown is setting a little cockeyed on the top of his head. A little drivel coming down his left cheek. Amen. And so in this compromised position, he asked the queen to come so the other men can look at her. This is not me. And we don't know the, the truth or the, 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 the real how things really played out. But there's some Jewish commentaries that report that the king, and you'll note in the scripture that the Bible says in particular in verse 11, that to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal to shew the people and the princess her beauty. There's some Jewish commentaries that even say that she was to come with the royal crown and nothing else. The royal crown would be the only attire that she was to come with. True or not true, again, we know how Mid-Easterners highly guard and still guard the exposure of their women in society. And in some regions, again, you only even see their eyes. Now, Vashti, and historians have a hard time. Who's Vashti in our real history, okay? Because they cannot necessarily find her name. But Vashti has about seven different spellings in the Persian world. And her name could mean best, beloved, desired. Very simply, Vashti meant this, sweetheart. And so sweetheart is what I call my wife as a pet name, right? It's not her name. It's a term of endearment, sweetheart, honey, babe, sugar, plum. I almost got a song going on there. So if Vashti could maybe not be a proper name, but just a pet name, such as sweetheart, might be the reason why they cannot find a direct correlation between who she is in the Bible and who she is historically. And oftentimes, how many people... Whenever you've heard or read and the story of Esther's been taught, oftentimes, well, always or sometimes, maybe paint Queen Vashti in the sense of being the rebellious, the rebellious queen. She's rebellious because she did not come before the king when the king said, come. But again, let's understand the setting. Huh? We got drunkards, the king's Mary. Let's just say, like, he's not really thinking straight. Huh? Has anybody, I, uh, and I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to charge anybody, but if anybody's ever been drunk in this room, had you ever done anything drunk that you wouldn't have done when you were sober? Yes. The king is making a choice and a decision here that he might not have made had he been a sober king. And whenever we learn of Vashti then, this isn't really the acts of a rebellious woman as much as it is as a woman that is basing her response on her own dignity. Hmm? I'm going to come in this room with a bunch of men just to gawk at me. Right? I mean, King, King Honeybun is not thinking right right now. You know? Whatever. It's not taking place. These guys are merry. 
So Vashti refused. And the Bible says the king was wroth and his anger burned within him. As a matter of fact, we see at different times in Esther that when the king had wine and something happens that he becomes wroth with anger. Which sometimes is a correlation between alcohol and a person becoming inflamed with anger. And so he's very wroth with anger. And we have to ask ourselves, is this just the personality of the king or is this someone that's under the influence of something? Is all of this heightened because he has a merry heart, he is drunk? And so as a good story does, Esther begins with a little bit of background because what's happening is it's setting us up, as we'll get to next week, that Queen Vashti is going to be removed from her position of being queen. And you know what that does? That creates a vacancy. That creates a void in the kingdom. That needs filled, which means someone's going to have to look for a new queen, which begins our story then in search of a new queen, which we know comes to be Esther. And so Vashti is removed because of what happens and what this sets up for us. And I told you last week, I believe the whole story in the book of Esther could really be labeled with one word. That's reversal. The whole story, in my opinion, could be, could be labeled with one word, reversal. Number one, as we see right here, the king says, come, she don't come, reversal. We'll see here coming next week, here in chapter one, the king has had everybody together because he's planning a war. He's planning a battle against the Grecians. He wants to honor his father's uh, life of trying to do that and he wants to honor his dad so he's going to go fight the Grecians and we're going to come to find out that between chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Esther guess what he attempted and he failed reversal and then we'll start off then in chapter number 2 and verse number 1 what does he do he begins to remember Vashti what she did and what was going on? I even read it to you. Chapter 2 and verse 1. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, all right, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Now look at this. This is a man that's fought a battle. He's lost. And now he's going back home. But there's nobody to go home to. And he's not drunk. He's been fighting, been warring. He's in his right mind. And he's starting to remember Queen Vashti that he gave the boot to. And really what she had done in comparison to what was decreed against her. He's starting to have second thoughts is what's going on. Reversal. So we have reversal, of course, with Vashti not coming. We have reversal with him thinking he's going to go to war against the Grecians and honor his father, and he comes back defeated. And through Esther, you're going to see time and time again, reversal. Thought that was going to happen? Nope, that happened. This was going to take place? Nope, that happened. And it happens over and over again in the book of Esther. If you'll stand with me tonight, I'll come to a close. I had to get through that in order to get through other stuff. Sorry, sorry, sorry. All right? But that sets us up then for Queen Esther and some things that are going to take place. But first, it, it, we also will be continuing to look at Vashti just a little bit longer. And what did happen to her? Was it justifiable? And so on and so forth. Amen. But this is the story of Esther. Amen. Uh, Brother Malone was right. We have no other announcements except we, he and I are going to men's conference, all right, uh, on, on uh, Friday. And so we will go and come back. We'll have service here on Sunday twice. And then also later in the month, is the women's conference at the very end, the last weekend-ish 
portion of the month is women's conference and so that's going to be a great time for them as well amen we want you to greet our guests as you're dismissed tonight amen come back on sunday as again folks since this is a story again i know it's just not like a verse and a point a verse and a point we kind of got to build some things before some of those points come together and so if you're willing to go on the journey i'm willing to walk all right, and we'll do it as we have along the way. Let's ask God to touch us tonight. Father, I love you this evening. God, I'm so thankful for your power. I'm thankful, Lord, for your grace. I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, today, God, that you are our Savior. God, that you'll take our hand and that you'll help to lead and guide us, Lord, into all truth. Help us, God, to learn the truths, God, of your word, Lord, written, Jesus, in every story of the Bible. All of it, Lord, can be applied to our lives if we'll look to it, Lord Jesus, and for how it can be applied. I pray God bless your people this week as they go their separate ways god let your hand of protection be upon them and help them lord jesus with their challenges this week we'll fail not to thank you and praise you for it in the lovely name of the lord jesus christ that i pray and the church say amen amen in jesus name hallelujah god bless you in jesus name we will see you on sunday thank you for listening if you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.